I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, we have with us CSIS's Mavemba Dizolele, who is our CSIS Africa Program Director and Senior Fellow. Mavemba, welcome. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So tell me, why is this Africa Leaders Summit happening at this time, and why is it so important for both African nations and the United States? Thank you, Andrew. It's, it's hard to say why it's happening at this time specifically. Of course, it's the middle of the winter now. Uh, no Africans want to come to Washington. It's freezing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's happening, I think. It's because it's, it's clear that Africa is the continent of the future. Any country, any power that has any ambition cannot structure its future without hitching its own wagon to Africa. And we've been seeing, you know, lately you hear a lot of uh, pandits talking about great power competition and so on. Africa is one of those centers of that competition. It's a continent rich in resources. I'm talking about minerals. I'm talking about water, forest, and so on. But most importantly, it's the youngest continent. Let me just put in perspective. The median age in Africa is 19 years. The median age in Germany is 49. Right. For all the contingencies that we're talking about moving forward as a world, we cannot solve those problems without the input of the African youth. That's the most important uh, resource that Africa has today. That's where the workforce lies for the future. That's where education lies for the future. That's where the resource will be in terms of mitigating climate change. So China is in Africa doing things. They've been doing this for years. Russia is expanding its presence there. The Turks have been really up and coming. They're everywhere on the continent using both hard power and soft power and becoming very popular about it. The U.S. has been in Africa, so we're not trying to suggest that the U.S. has not been doing much in Africa. But the U.S. has not been consistent in the way it engages Africa. The U.S. has not clearly defined where Africa sits in its own strategy, its own global strategy as a superpower. So therefore, having the summit today is important. If you recall, the last time we had a summit like this was in 2014. That was Barack eight Obama. years ago. Barack Obama, President Barack Obama hosted that summit. A lot of gravitas, a lot of momentum, but it didn't seem to, to continue. He didn't host one in 2015. He didn't host one in 2016. President Obama could have set the tone. He did not. U.S. allies and competitors alike, so France, Turkey, China, and many other countries that hold this kind of summit do it regularly. They do it every year. They alternate whether it's hosted in France or in Beijing or in an African capital. So the U.S. in many ways is coming to this late, but better late than never. If I understand it, part of this for the United States is that we're concerned that China and other entities, Russia, Turkey, are going to beat us to the chase in terms of minerals in Africa, in terms of workforce, in terms of relationships, in terms of infrastructure. Is that right? 
I think China plays a certain role. I don't think it's the only uh, reason. I think the U.S. is just coming to the realization that Africa is real. The things that, that we need, the people that we need. And I may actually suggest that the vote on Ukraine at the United Nations earlier this year, where African countries voted a certain way to the surprise of the West and the United States, that I presume I will say is actually was a wake-up call because the West and the United States seem to have taken Africa for granted. You know, the, the Cold War is ended long time ago. There was no more ideology. So it's like, ah. But then the Africans showed that, no, no, no. We have our own interests. We have our own friends. Your friends are not always our friends. Your enemies are not always our enemies. You need to take us seriously. I think that contributed quite a bit in creating better momentum leading us to where we are today. Are we in a good place with most African countries or are we, do we have a lot of work to do here in the United States? If you're, if you're advising the Biden White House, the National Security Council, what are you telling them that they need to do to prepare for this summit and to succeed in this summit? I think the U.S. came to this summit with a trust deficit. And that just because of the past, the way we have engaged, it's, it's often fit and start. If you have a queen in your country, then we withdraw. If you behave a certain way, we suspend you or we reduce our engagement. That has not worked well for the U.S. Africa is open for business. There is no single African country that does not want U.S. leadership and business. So the problem is really lies with the United States. It's the United States, it's up to the United States to decide now is the time we want really to increase our engagement with you. And by that, I mean, the U.S. does a lot of work on the humanitarian side. We hosted at CSIS, USAID administrator Samantha Power a few months ago where she made a declaration that the U.S. will give that large amount of money to help fight the famine depending family in the horn. So the U.S. does a lot of that. Ambassadors, U.S. ambassadors, like uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield at the U.N., Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, all of them have traveled to Africa several times. But that's not enough. What Africa needs, it's also U.S. investment, foreign direct investment, U.S. businesses. The Chinese, the Turks are building infrastructure. Africans cannot just eat democracy. Democracy is important in leading to good governance, but you need partners. And the U.S. is well positioned for this, but the U.S. is not engaging fully at that level. What are the kinds of investments that the United States needs to make, in your view? We have, uh, like any other country, the United States has a lot of competitive advantages, right? We're very good with technology. And we know, of course, that the Chinese have been investing a lot with Huawei, with all kinds of things. There's nothing that prevents the United States to jump in there. By the United States, I mean American businesses, not the government. The government can only be a facilitator. The government does not go and invest in that way, but it's really the government. Yeah, it makes it harder for us in some ways than the Chinese who can just tell their companies what to do. We don't have that system here. So what does our government do to encourage this type of investment in Africa? The United States needs to scale the institution we already have and the uh, initiative that we have. So the Chinese have a China Export-Import Bank. What? The United States has the U.S. Export-Import Bank. 
So question is, what is the United States Export-Import Bank not doing? What can they do also to become big player in that space? Because the Chinese certainly are doing it. They're probably guaranteeing risks for their entrepreneurs and businesses that are trying to invest in Africa. Exim Bank, last I checked, has been very timid. You know, there's always all kind of restriction we put in place. We cannot do this because of that. We cannot do that. And because of that. and all that stuff is like, question is like, what is it that the Chinese businesses are seeing in Africa that we do not seem capable of seeing? We have the De uh, Development Finance Corporation. It's relatively new. It's young, but it's a lot of money. Do we scale those that as well so that, you know, Africans know about USAID. So all the Africans who are in a humanitarian space know about USAID. Because USAID has been there for a long time. USAID is considered a reliable partner. They deliver. Everybody knows them. Everybody knows that symbol of theirs, the handshake that in every bag of a flower or whatever they give out. Most people don't know about the US Exim Bank. In other words, people in the business space who want to work with the Exim Bank don't have access to it, the U.S. Exim Bank, that is. Most African entrepreneurs and business who want to know more about the development finance corporations don't have that access. Power Africa, question is like, where are they working? Why aren't they as much a household name in that space as USAID is in the development and humanitarian space? So to me, it's not even about really hearing what the president will say tomorrow or the day after. It's really about how do we scale up what we already have and deliver on those fronts so that African can see us like, oh, here's a source we can go. We don't always have to go to Beijing or to Guangzhou. We can actually come to Washington or we can go to the U.S. Embassy or to a U.S. trade mission in country X or country Y. Movema, so much of the discussion surrounding this summit focuses on Africa as like one entity. But of course, it's really a continent made up of 54 countries. Who are America's strongest allies on the African continent? And what should we expect from those leaders this week here in Washington? Andrew, you're getting to the crux of the question. Africa, 54 countries. U.S. doesn't have permanent partners in Africa. And this is a reflection of the type of engagement that the U.S. has been doing in Africa. If we go to Asia, you and I can put together half dozen countries that are permanent partners of the United States. Yeah, It starts with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia. We go to the Middle East, the other side of Asia. We have Israel, we have Jordan. The U.S. doesn't have that type of partner in Africa. Like this is, the, this is a country or these are countries will stand with us. The reason we don't have, because we've not invested to the level where people come to see us as reliable. People know we're good when we want to be, but we're not reliable. So we've not built those type of ties. I think the U.S. needs to have at least 10 African countries that are considered reliable partners to the United States. But that, I mean, is not for the UN, the vote at the UN. This place we've invested, Egypt is probably close, but even Egypt has had back and forth. It's not always been permanent. That's what I'm, I've not cited Egypt, right? They've been with the Soviets, then they've been with the Americans, then, you know, it's never permanent in that way, in the way, let's say, Japan. If you go to Asia, the partners of the United States are not all the same. 
Japan is not the same as the Philippines. Thailand is not the same as Australia. It's a spectrum. We don't have that in Africa. That I think the U.S. needs to be working on. Who are the countries and the leaders that we trust the most right now? It varies. This is part of the part of the challenge. One day we're talking to we're very close to the Rwandans. We were very close to the Ethiopians for a while there, right? With Meles, we were really tight with Ethiopia, and then now uh, we're not, right? We do a lot of projects with Rwanda, the U.S. in terms of security, but then that is based off often on the sheer willpower of one leader. You know, the the type of relationship I'm talking about a relationship that transcend transcend leaders. You know, it doesn't matter who's the president of the Philippines. The Philippines are partner of the United States. It doesn't matter who takes over as prime minister in Japan. Japan is a, we have this we have disagreement on various issues, but the country that state remains a partner. We don't have that in Africa. What does the Biden administration need to do in your view to begin to get to that place? There seems to be a real trust deficit. At this point in his presidency, Biden has met with fewer African heads of state than either President Obama or President Trump. What has this demonstrated to African leaders so far? And will this summit begin to help make up for that deficit of trust? The fact that this summit is happening is very important. And I personally commend our friends at, on the National Security Council, the team there, the Africa team there, the team at the State Department, and all the other agencies, DOD, who came together to pull this off. I think it's very important. Now, what are they going to do? I think this is the beginning. Whatever comes out of this, when all the pronouncements have been made, the signals have been sent. At this point, I know that the president has signed an executive order creating an advisory council on African diaspora. I know that the U.S. has announced an investment, a package of $55 billion. And there will be more that will be coming. While all of them are not like, you gamble, you know, big, 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 $55 billion for 54 countries, is, it's, it's, not, it's good, but it's not a lot, a lot of money. We're talking about 54 countries, like you said. Sure. And the issues are big. But it's a, an important start. It's the president signaling like, okay, we, we get you. We want to understand your priorities. It's not about the U.S. dictating to the Africans. It's about the U.S. and the Africans meeting somewhere in the middle and saying, this is how we can work together. If the president can articulate that today he's hosting them for dinner and tomorrow before the summit closes, then that can be a good start. Then what needs to be happening is, does the president visit Africa next year? Does the president announce that we're going to have this summit every year or every two years and he's going to alternate? Already, uh, the National Security Council uh, advisor, Jack Sullivan, had signaled that the U.S. will not be putting conditionality on the relationship with Africans. In other words, they acknowledge, as the, strat the Africa strategy did back in August, that African countries have their own agency, so they get to decide. The question for us in the United States is what do we offer them so they can choose us? How much of a factor does democracy play in all of this? Because not every country in Africa is reflective of the U.S. view of democracy. Correct. So democracy is one thing. And the U.S., again, here we have to commend the U.S. No country pushes for democracy like the United States does. There's no other country like that in the world. The U.S. is willing to put its money there. 
The U.S. actually, however, sometimes gets incoherent in its push for democracy. So if we see some of the leaders are here, some of them didn't come to power through democratic means. But there's some leaders that are not here, about five of them, because they were suspended because they had coups and stuff. So democracy, I think, is a long-term work. The U.S. needs to continue engaging in it, but it's not the only thing that matters to the United States for a set of reasons. So there, too, we need to decide how do we best engage. So if you look, the country, if you look at the countries in the Sahel, like Burkina Faso, Mali, and Guinea, just to give you those examples there, who have been suspended by the African Union, and therefore their leaders are not here because they engaged in coups, they came to power to coups. Well, is it the best way? I, I don't know. One can argue where they want us to engage. This is exactly when we need to engage with them. So we can be really tight with them and say, look, we understand the coup happened, but this is not good for your country. And we're going we're gonna to help you transition back to democracy. What do you need? How can we be most helpful? When we pull out and suspend them or limit our engagement with them, we are creating opportunities for competitors to go in there and say, okay, the Americans, see, they're not going to talk to you. You can wait, but they're coming. We can deliver this now. What do you want? Do you want to wait for you to mend your relationship with Washington? Or do you want to take what we give you now? And by the way, we're going to use our influence with the UN or with other countries to make sure that whatever this thing of America's limited diplomacy with you doesn't go too far. Movema, if you had one thing to predict coming out of the summit this week, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, and I'm sorry to even ask this question, but what is your hope will happen by the end of the week? My hope that will happen, actually twofold, the president announces that the summit will become a regular event. The next one will be next year. That he announces that he will travel to Africa at the next summit, and it will take place in Africa. Those are the two things that I think will start. Do you think it's realistic to have the president travel to Africa at some time next year? Very realistic. He's traveled before. He's gone to other places. There's no reason why he cannot go to Africa. Movema Dizale, thank you so much for helping us understand this complex dynamic of 54 countries on the African continent trying to mend ties and strengthen ties with the United States. Thank you very much to you, Andrew. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 